Roger. And I'm Andrea, and this is Two Bad Well, as you can tell from the sound of uh, our audio, at least one of us is on the road right now, uh, driving somewhere. Andrea, do you want to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, so this is um, an experiment. It's an experiment in living dangerously. Uh, we had to record the podcast in this window. Um, and I am driving from New York to Norfolk right now for some reservist thing. Uh, so yeah, so you hear the beautiful sounds of the New Jersey Turnpike. It's like, it, it's a symphony. It's, it's a symphony. <laughs> I guess we should note that we'll both be on the road. Uh, you're on today. I will be on tomorrow driving to Syracuse where I will remain. It's a little bit of a one-way trip for me, so... Um, but we know that it's definitely winter out there, so we hope that everybody is careful. Uh, we sure are going to try as well. I know there's a, a winter storm coming upstate today, tomorrow, Wednesday. Andrea, every day is a winter storm compared to every, every day is a winter storm. Life is <laughs> south New York. Of and snow, <laughs> snow tires are awesome, guys. They really <laughs> are. I checked them out. I had to see at the glass storm. I had to drive through five inches of snow uh, before the plow had come, and just like backed out of my driveway, and, and the wheels just like, oh, this is lovely. <laughs> Speaking though of upstate New York, here uh, before we get going, Andrea, we should talk. A person said a thing about where we grew up and where we both currently live. Earlier this week, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, reiterated fucking, comments. I will fucking fight you if you insult us. <laughs> he reiterated comments that he's made before because he doesn't like Andrew Cuomo. Um, he said that uh, people who should people who live in upstate New York are being mistreated by the governor, and they should move to another state where they can find a good-paying job. That's just stupid. It's just dumb. Everybody yeah, should move I mean, back so, to upstate New York. Yeah. So this, of course, burns a little bit of social media um, flaming. Um, all right, guys. The reason for for population loss in upstate New York is a lot of like people aging and leaving because it's cold. It's. It, I mean. Just come back to upstate. Come back to upstate New York. Upstate New York is great. Where we live there. I I just like this whole the whole comment the whole comments about people leaving upstate New York. You should just besides the fact that he just insulted a very large part of the state who voted for him. Um, it's also just like what. How lazy can you be? Like, why should we just be like, oh, well, everything's going to be in cities, so screw everything that's not in the city. You have so many great examples of what uh, Vermont is doing to encourage remote work. It looks like Massachusetts is looking to encourage remote work. There are a lot of innovative solutions to how to encourage people who might normally be a young professional living in an urban area to live in a place that's more rural or in a smaller city. Let's just get creative rather than throwing our hands up and saying, oh, well, we should just move. And let's also note that, um, I guess this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Not everybody has a gold-plated escalator that they descend down. Uh, Moving costs money, and it's difficult. And if telling people to move, access... 
And telling people to move to access economic opportunity is your economic development plan. Uh, you suck. <laughs> I hate to put it yeah. so bluntly. I'll, I'll reserve the remainder of my comments. I've actually got an op-ed coming out tomorrow in the Auburn Citizen about how just out of touch Donald Trump is with the average American on this issue. Uh, but we'll just, I guess, leave it with, we moved back to upstate New York because we believe in it and uh, we are willing to fight for it. And we hope that many of you will too. Uh, definitely a tale of two states, but there are plenty of levers, programs, systems in place that make starting a business, living in uh, central and upstate New York um, as easy as any place else in the state. So quit giving us a bad rap, you son of a bitch. Okay, uh, so with that. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it great that you're not on active duty anymore? It's, it's so wonderful, actually. Um, <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about what we're eating or drinking today. Are we, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm going to go ahead and not implicate you in a, in a, in a potential crime. I don't, I don't think you're drinking anything, else, <laughs> but what, what's, your, uh, what's your driving uh, beverage of choice? I have a full Nalgene uh, water, frankly. Although, let me tell you, Dunkin' Donuts uh, Thin Mint Cappuccino is amazing. That's, uh, uh, that's, but, not, that's not New Jersey water in that Nalgene, is it? No, it is not New Jersey water. It is New York water. Thank you very much. Okay. Just wanted to see if I had to get a medical appointment ready for you upon your arrival. Yeah, I'll, I'll make it. Uh, Roger, what about you? What are you eating? <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, basically eating packing tape right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I mentioned, tomorrow I'm uh, hopefully, uh, weather permitting, making the drive up to Syracuse where I will start living full time and working out of. So um, looking forward to that and um, eating and drinking the full range of Middle Ages brewing, dinosaur barbecue, and all the like. So it should be, uh, it should be awesome. Uh, come find me. Um, Andrew, you're driving, but tell us what's new with you. What is new with me? So I am on week three of a three-week road show. I originally was planning to go home, sleep at home last, uh, yeah, last night after drill. And then I realized that was just going to add three hours of driving total to my week. And, and with multiple six-hour drives, I was like, no. Um, so I've been doing uh, a bunch. I've been knocking out a bunch of my reserve requirements for the year. I've been in DC doing stuff for service to school. And then today um, I actually just went back to my K through 12 school, um, Trinity school in New York city to uh, give a talk to the middle school there. So um, as many of our listeners know, I did not grow up upstate. Uh, I grew up in Manhattan. Uh, I came to New York State, uh, upstate New York later. Well, my dad, my dad's from Buffalo. Um, I went to Summer Camp in upstate New York, and I started really living there when I was my family. Uh, my family moved up there full time when I was in college, and I really fell in love with it. So, upstate New York for me has been very much part of my identity my entire adulthood. Um, but I went back to my school to give a talk to the middle school about my service and what my service means to me and how I went from, you know, the sixth grade at Trinity writing historical fiction about women who fought in the Civil War to actually going and fighting in a war myself. Um, it was, it was amazing. I mean, 
middle school is a tough crowd to talk to because it's just such a wide range of ages. I mean, your fifth graders are literally children and your eighth graders are young adults. And um, so they, and the questions were uh, kind of reflected that, but they were all really thoughtful. I mean, they wanted to know when I was the most scared and had I touched guns, fired guns, and uh, where I had been, and nobody asked it, but then I also said, you know, hey, you probably wonder what all these ribbons mean, because I was in dress blues. So I explained what my ribbons meant, and what service meant to me, and it was, it was just really, because I, I, I really struggled to come up with what I was going to say, because I was in the room looking at the very pews that I sat in on 9-11 and giving a presentation on the same screen where I saw in real time the Twin Towers burning just a couple of miles further south in the city and speaking to an audience of children and young adults who weren't even born yet when the wars that were still in started. And um, it, it was, and, and this is the thing that was very interesting. Because when I asked people to raise their hands uh, to say, you know, who in here has a parent or a sibling who served in the military, I mean, there were about a dozen hands that went up. And this is in a room of about 100, 150 people. Yep. So I was, that was more than I expected. Um, and I think that's more than when I would have been a student there. Um, it was, and also it was just great to see some of my, my former teachers. It was, I, I was really blown away. I mean, just by 11-year-olds being so thoughtful. And um, yeah, so that, that was what I did today. That was really incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. And congratulations on that. I think it's it's very interesting to hear from especially younger people, kids and adults, uh, what their preconceptions of military service are, you know, because it gives us a little insight into the future of the civil divide a little bit and how we uh, how we can mend that a little bit better, I think. Yeah, and, and what was, I mean, even better was, I mean, I had lunch in the cafeteria there, and uh, one of my kindergarten teachers was, was still there, and she was there with her students, and I went and said hello, and it, it, was, it blew my mind that people remembered me by name, recognized me, um, but there were, so there were all these, like, little elementary school kids who were so excited to be like, oh, my brother's in the Air Force, or my dad's this, or my uncle's this. And they had, they were like, what does this color, you know, my ribbons meant. They were so excited. I, I really think that had that been me when I was that age, I would have been really scared. Hmm. And when you're talk, talking about, like, the civil military divide, there definitely is one. I mean, walking around in Manhattan in my uniform, I just get stared at because people never see it. But it didn't feel, but, but it was all very positive energy. And, and. You know, in thinking about how we overcome the civil military divide, which is very, very real, I think it's a great reminder to assume assume positive intent. Yeah, that's a good point. So 
So Roger, what else is new with you? Yeah, I know you're driving on my end, uh, besides obviously moving. Uh, this Saturday, February 16th, I'll be at Stout Beer Brewing Company, which is in the Westcott neighborhood of uh, Syracuse, to officially launch a group I put together called Veterans Organize Central New York. Uh, purpose uh, this really is to better connect national service veterans. So not just military vets, but Peace Corps, Teach for America, City Year, whoever else, uh, their families and, and our friends in the area, uh, better connect them so that we can provide sort of an interface for veterans to local organizing and advocacy work and for the maybe non-veteran community organizers and activists to have a place to go to ask questions about, you know, what can veterans provide? How do we best leverage strengths of these people moving back? You know, do we know who in our community is actively serving and who is leaving the service and considering coming back and how do we reach out and, and touch those people and welcome them home? So obviously something very near and dear to my heart and close to the situation I'm at now, but uh, we're having a launch party this Saturday. Um, I'd love to see as many people who can come out as possible as we sort of grow the veteran space in our local advocates. So um, very excited about that. Uh, we'll segue quickly over to sort of a couple of the topics that we wanted to talk about this week. A lot has gone on. Um, a lot of good, a lot of uh, tragedy in dealing with loss. Uh, but we'll start, Andrea, with something good, I think, and that is uh, a child care bill that uh, is at the top of your mind, right? Yes. So a major issue for veterans in accessing health care, particularly um, emergency care, mental health care, has been uh, access to child care. And it does disproportionately affect uh, women veterans, so it does impact uh, both men and women. Um, so there has been a, there's been a pilot program in a couple of states and a couple of individual VA clinics where they were either providing childcare or subsidizing childcare for patients. Um, that was uh, that pilot was now formalized. Uh, a bill went to the House floor on Friday uh, to provide to expand that nationwide, and it passed 409. Uh, so. Uh, you know, now it moves on to the Senate, and really excited to really see that additional barrier to care lifted. So that's uh, the next thing we want to talk about is the North Country Women's uh, Women Veterans Support Group. Um, I'm just going to crib off of their yeah. uh, social media uh, announcement, which is on starting March 6th at 2 p.m. and the first Wednesday of every month at the North Country Veterans Association. They're looking for, um, they're asking, are you a woman veteran who is coping with depression, PTSD, trauma, bipolar disorder, anxiety, or other mental illness? Uh, we welcome you to join the support group designed with the unique needs of the female veteran in mind. Um, this will be facilitated by uh, various professionals in the North Country with a peer support group model. Uh, topics will be provided based on the needs presented each month, and it's a confidential group. We'll obviously post this uh, to the show notes, but Andrea, I know you had some thoughts on uh, this interesting uh, development. Yes. So if you are in the North Country and, you're in a, and you are a woman veteran and 
the group is geographically convenient for you because the North Country is it's a big swath uh, of the state. Um, I encourage you to go, um, even if you don't have, don't feel that you have any of the conditions they've listed. Um, that's actually one of my frustrations with it. I, I appreciate that they want to have a group that's specifically for the mental health care needs of women veterans. But I also know that women veterans in particular, I mean, all veterans do this, but women veterans do this more acutely, is to say that, well, you know, someone else has it worse. Go, you'll probably make new friends or at least be around people who understand you and understand your experience. Um, you may never, I mean, the, I would highly recommend if you're looking for a group of women veterans, even if you feel that you don't necessarily meet the criteria, I strongly encourage you to go. Um, and just in, in general, I'm not super keen on the use of them saying mental illness um, because a lot of these are about just chronic psychological conditions that we all live with. And it, and it almost makes it seem like I don't know. It, I'm really, maybe it's just me. I'm really not comfortable with the terminology, but it makes it sound like there's something wrong with you right. when all of the psychological conditions that many of us have after our service are completely normal, natural reactions to what we lived through. Exactly. And so, in fact, it means that there's everything right with you. It's just another feature of life that you now have to deal with. Um, but I'm really excited that this group is organizing. North Country is very underserved. So I'm so glad this is out there. New York State Veterans has been pushing this information out there. So again, if you're in the North Country and you're a woman veteran and you have time and can get there, uh, make sure your snow tires are on and, and get there. <laughs> <laughs> I almost don't have to tell that to people in the North Country. It's sort of on. Oh, definitely. Months of the year, right? <laughs> um, well, the next thing yeah. we were supposed to talk about is our friend Maggie Seymour's uh, CNAS report on a lack of support uh, in the reserves. But I think we'll get into that with our guest. Um, but before yeah. we get into our, our before we, yeah, before we get into the <laughs> reserves, I, we do want to talk about uh, a member of our community of veterans uh, upstate who lost her life recently. Uh, we're talking about uh, Senior Chief Shannon Kent um, from Pine Plains, New York. Uh, she was killed in the uh, improvised explosive device attack in Man Beach, Syria, uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, hits home in a number of ways. Uh, not only was she from uh, Pine Plains, uh, she also served with me. Uh, I was in her command. I didn't know her well, but had met her, and she is... Uh, I just thought of her as incredibly sharp, uh, very competent, and clearly a leader of the sailors who um, served under her. Um, her uh, funeral service was this past Friday at the Naval Academy Chapel in Annapolis. Uh, she was a cryptologic technician chief, uh, which what does that mean for, for the layperson? Uh, what do we do in the Navy's cyber uh, community? Uh, she was a linguist. She was an expert in languages. She was an expert in what we call signals intelligence. For those of you that don't know, that is all the communication signals. Um, how do they come together to uh, form uh, the most important thing in our world, which is actionable intelligence? Uh, 
right? How do we make sure we know where the bad guys are and how to get at the bad guys? She was uh, chief, you know, literally and figuratively in that process. And Andrea, I know you've had some thoughts on um, the special uh, operations aspect of her life and, and sort of what that means for women serving uh, in those capacities writ large. Yeah, um, Senior Chief Kent, that really hit home. Um, I didn't know Senior Chief Kent well. Um, I knew her by email and by name. Uh, we were in sister commands at the same time, so I didn't really know her. I knew of her. Um, and the New York Times finally kind of got the point and, and did an article about her this weekend, which we'll link to in the show notes. And if you follow me on social media, um, I put my thoughts out there. I mean, she was a trailblazer in Navy special operations in just as a woman serving in special operations in an operational role with really no recognition and no credit. And that's fine. Um, you know, she was doing very well in her career, but I think it's really important to recognize the work people actually do. And um, I, there, whenever I've seen uh, when Navy SEALs killed and male cryptologic technicians killed who've been serving in soft roles, I've seen that there's a hashtag Long live the Brotherhood, and I'll see it used for them. And I didn't see that used for her. And people are like, well, she wasn't a SEAL. Like, no, she wasn't a man. And I think it's really important to recognize that so much of these wars have been fought on the back and, and hard work of women like Senior Chief Kent who were only recognized in death and aren't even recognized as operators in death. And I, the more I learn about what she did in, I mean, going back, I think her first special operations was like in 2007. Uh, I know I personally owe a lot of what I got to do in my career because she kicked ass 10 years earlier. Right. Um, and um, so I would say, you know, long live the sisterhood. Yeah. And, and I rest think, in power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the last, the last point I kind of want to make is both the, the bit of tragedy to this specific situation to her specific situation and the reminder that comes out of all of this. And that is that she should not have been in Syria on this deployment in the first place. Um, I'll just crib a little bit out of, out of the New York times article. Um, she, after a few operations overseas in the Middle East with the spec ops community had decided that she wanted to become a clinical psychologist and treat veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, she was an enlisted member at the time. So that meant that she had to become a Navy officer, um, and spent six years studying and training. She was scheduled to go to the Navy's officer candidate school in Rhode Island last June and to begin her classes for her PhD this past fall. 
but she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer in 2016. Um, thankfully, uh, she had an operation and removed the cancer. But because of an obscure rule and regulation that hasn't been updated in decades, um, she had a medical mark on her file and was not allowed to go to officer candidate school. Not allowed to go to officer candidate school, but still allowed to deploy to Syria, uh, to this what was probably a very dangerous mission, obviously. So um, she didn't give up, though. She didn't just accept her fate and move on. She realized how ridiculous it was and the fact that people after her would need a change in this regulation. So she pressed her case with her congressional representatives. Um, and after she passed away, her husband followed up with that. Um, and the Navy finally modified its rules to make it easier for enlisted service members who wish to become officers to petition for medical waivers. Um, too little, too late. But the reminder out of that is that you can't stop fighting, right? Um, the system, anytime you see a, a flawed rule anywhere, whether that's you're still in DOD, uh, you're dealing with the VA or any other system, um, just, you know, find ways to get at the problem and be loud. And Shannon certainly did not uh, allow herself to be intimidated. She went right to Congress. And I think that's a lesson for all of us to take bold action when you see a wrong. Uh, don't let it continue to be a wrong for other people. Um, that's something that we've taken with us. I know, Andrea, you and I, that's the reason why we're here and, and we stay loud and hope to inspire other people to do the same. So are we ready to introduce our guest? Yes, ma'am. All right. So our guest this week is Malia Dumont, who is a U.S. Army veteran um, and reservist and is the chief of staff at Bard College in Annandale on Hudson, New York. Uh, Roger, you have her bio in front of you. Do you want to read it? I got you. Uh, Malia Dumont is chief of staff at Bard College, where she also teaches in the political studies program. Prior to Bard, she was co-president and COO of Amur Equipment Finance, where she earned a bronze Stevie Award for Female Executive of the Year from the American Business Association. Malia has spent most of her career in national security, serving most recently as Director of Strategy in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, where she managed the intelligence, futures, and strategic risk portfolios, sat on the sub-IPC that drafted the President's intelligence priorities, served as lead DOD contact on coordinating the 2014 National Security Strategy, and consulted with the State Department on the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review. Prior to that, she worked on Homeland Defense Policy as lead coordinator for the Fort Hood Follow-On Review and Afghanistan-related Special Operations Policy in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and on the Joint Staff. She has also covered Afghanistan intelligence issues as an Army Reserve Officer on deployment in Kabul, where she was senior analyst in the Joint Intelligence Operations Center and at NATO SHAPE, where she was senior Afghanistan analyst. Uh, Malia began her career as a China specialist at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, uh, which is awesome because that's also where I got a brief grad degree, uh, where she managed the school's China Initiative, uh, a comprehensive program of executive training fellowships and conferences for senior Chinese military and government officials. Uh, she also spent several years analyzing Chinese military strength and doctrine at the CNA Corporation. Uh, she's also worked in China as an English teacher 
a news editor at a provincial TV station, and in the defense attache office in the American embassy in Beijing. In addition to Mandarin, she's also fluent in French and Spanish. She's got degrees from Bard and Harvard uh, University and is also a graduate of the Johns Hopkins Nanjing program. She's on the Military Advisory Council for the Arts in the Armed Forces, serves on the board of the World Affairs Council Mid-Hudson Valley Chapter, and is a member of the New York 19th Congressional District Veterans Advisory Committee. Malia, welcome to Two Vets Upstate, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm pleased to be with you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, what started your public service uh, career? Was there a moment that made you think this is this is something that I that I want to do, or, or how did that happen for you? I think I didn't articulate it necessarily as as public service um, until I was actually into it already. But I knew from a very young age that I was just interested in the way the world works. Um, I, I was in kindergarten, like that's, <laughs> I, from a very early age, I was involved in, in understanding some of the dynamics of the world. And I knew um, I wanted a career that was going to help shape those. And so it turns out that that's in public service. Um, but again, like that, um, I, I was just drawn by uh, the fact that the world is a very complex place, is fascinated by other countries. Um, I always wanted to learn a bunch of different languages. And when I was in college, I started to realize and think about um, that I was going to go into government because that's where the jobs that were working on those issues were located. And so um, it, it, I was really drawn to the content of the work, and um, I, I was compelled by what ended up being public service. So you've had a very different career um, in public service and national security. Um, and you also outraced yourself, actually, as a civilian versus oh, yeah. military. <laughs> uh, could you talk a little bit about the dynamic of being a, a, a you know a, a reservist, but also a senior government civilian? Yeah. So that, that's a really great question. That was fascinating, actually, because for most of my military career, you know, I, I enlisted in 1999. Um, for most of my military career, there wasn't much overlap at all. It wasn't an issue. Um, you know, I was I was glad to be doing the intel stuff, um, but once I joined the government, um, and especially after I became director of strategy, um, it, <laughs> it was uh, it was very interesting because here I was. I was a GS fifteen on the one hand, but then I was um, an O three on the other hand, and for a time I was sort of going back and forth between being, um, I mean, I was activated a couple of times. I was in uniform in the Pentagon uh, and, and then I would show up and do my civilian job sometimes and, and where I had 06s working for me. Um, and I, I think, <laughs> so I'll, I'll talk about a couple of different things. One was as, as, a, um, as a government civilian, uh, it was, I say I had a lot of respect from the military people who were working for me because they knew that I literally had walked in their shoes. They, they thought, I know some of them thought it was a little bit weird <laughs> that I remained in. Um, they, some of them asked me about it, like, you know, why are you staying in the military? Like, what else do you have to get out of this? Because it, it just seemed strange to them that there was such a discrepancy between my military rank and my civilian rank. 
you know, what, what's the purpose of that? Um, and I would tell them it's, you know, it's part of my identity as a person. It's, it's not about what I'm getting out of it, although I've obviously gotten a lot out of my service, but it's, it's about what I'm giving to it. And I wanted to continue to give to it. So, um, I got respect for that. On the other hand, um, as a reservist, um, I think the first time it became kind of weird was when I was, um, I was assigned to the China desk out at um, the Pacific Command because, you know, I've, I've credentialed, um, I, I'm, I'm able to work as a, a foreign area officer on China stuff. So I was out on the China desk and they knew that I was coming from, from the Office of Secretary of Defense and... <laughs> They, uh, th there was some, um, there was some trepidation about, you know, why was I really coming out there? Um, so I wasn't seen just as a reservist. I was seen as this whole person and that I was being sent by OSD, which wasn't the case at all. So I, I kind of had to prove myself in another way. I, I was there to work with them as a colleague. I wasn't there to report on them. Um, and so I had to develop some trust in that sense. Um, I think they thought it was a little bit weird too, but they were glad to have me once they realized I wasn't there to spy on them. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And it really, um, it helped my civilian job in a lot of ways because even though it was a little bit odd that I was developing policies as director of strategy um, that I was then enacting and helping implement as a desk officer out in the Pacific Command, someone once described it to me, they said, how does it feel to you? like you're throwing the football to yourself? You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know that um, if you're going to be a strategist, you really need to understand how the strategy is going to be implemented. It's not enough to have good ideas. So the fact that I um, was in both seats at the same time, I think made me a more well-rounded person. And hopefully I was able to bring more to my job as director of strategy. Uh, the final thing I'll say in response to your question is that um, I was I was really happy to be a, a reservist who was also a GS-15 director of strategy, and I um, I thought this is a great story for the Army Reserve. You know, they should be really happy about this. This is very exciting. You know, no reservist has ever had this this job before. Well, nobody had the job before. It was a new job. Uh, so I got in touch with the folks who, um, manage the, um, so the, the strategy specialization, uh, in the army, which, um, if you're going to get that MOS, you have to go through a year long course at the army war college. And I, I, you know, find out if I could get a waiver or if, if I could do a, a some kind of abbreviated version of the course. And, um, I just got, uh, I, I didn't spend too much time pursuing it because the, the the response I got was kind of, you know, here's here's a super bureaucratic <laughs> uh, procedure that you're going to have to go through. And I thought, I, I don't have time to deal with that. Um, this is either a good news story and they want to make it happen. And um, I, I don't know if I just didn't get in touch with the right person, but they, uh, they, they didn't see it as the kind of good message that they wanted to work on uh, the same way I did. So that was a little bit disappointing, but uh, I didn't lose any sleep over it. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the subspecialty codes uh, seem to be a bit uh, divorced from the actual people with specialty in the field sometimes. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Right. I, 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 and I, 
I did follow up with them once. So I didn't want to be snarky, but I just kind of wanted to lay it out. I'm like, okay, so you're telling me like, I'm the director of strategy in the office of secretary of defense. And I want to get strategy specialization as an army reservist. And, you know, is there a way for, for me to do that? And the, and they, they, they didn't have a creative way to think about it. And that, that's not, that's not their fault. You know, that's, that's a symptom of the larger institution that there, there's just, um, that there isn't, it's hard to be creative and innovative um, when you have so much bureaucracy. Right. I think we call that uh, bureaucratic inertia uh, working mm-hmm. against us. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you uh, about the decision to join the Army Reserves as opposed to any of the other services. Um, yeah. And to ask if you had any uh, history of uh, family or friends who had served in the uh, in any of the armed forces and, and how that yeah. to your decision to join the Army Reserves. Well, I, um, I definitely don't come from a military family. I didn't even find out until after I joined that um, a couple of my uncles had been in the Army. It's just not something that um, is really part of our family identity. Um, and my dad was in Navy ROTC for like a semester in college, but then he had some eyesight issues or something and couldn't continue. Um, so it wasn't connected to anything family for me. Uh, it was really... Um, this feeling that got stronger as I continued with my studies of national security, um, that it's not enough for me to study this stuff, that I I really felt, I guess the best way to describe it is a calling, um, a calling to go into this kind of service. And um, I talked about it on and off with my family that I was interested in this, and I'm not sure they thought I was serious, um, because they had no real frame of of reference because it, it's not part of my, my family story. And, and some of my friends are like, well, you know, there's a lot of ways you can serve your country. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be in the military, but for me, um, I'm, I'm just, I'm a very, by personality, I'm a very sort of duty driven person. And I, I really felt like I needed to support, like actively support the system that with all its, it's flaws. We all know it's not perfect. It's still the best thing out there, our, our democratic system. And I felt particularly strong about that after I spent time living in China, which obviously is not <laughs> the same kind of system. And so living um, in that country, seeing what state control of the media looks like, um, seeing what it means to live under communism and then working in the American embassy there, working at, at the defense attache office side by side with some of the finest officers um, and enlisted you'll ever find um, in the U S military. It really showed me that this is a career where um, it's very honorable and you're supporting things that are important to me. Um, I'm, you know, I've always thought of myself as a patriot and so that's what sort of that's what drove me towards joining the military. Um, the army, in particular, um, you know, I, I wasn't ever really interested in the air force. Um, I thought about the navy, um, but then when I looked into it more, I realized the, the army actually has the um, sort of the oldest and most well-established uh, foreign area officer program. And since I was in China, when I working with the U.S. military in China, when I um, started seriously thinking about this, I was, you know, leaning in the direction of something that would give me those kind of opportunities. Going, so 
once I learn more about the Foreign Area Officer Program, I, on a number of occasions, I've been able to fill Foreign Area Officer billets, even though I don't have the specific designation, um, because I, I have... You know, I have the language, you know, I have the defense language proficiency test scores, I have the education level, um, I haven't been through the training program, but I, I, you know, I spent several years at the CNA Corporation studying Chinese military doctrine. So I'm as much of an expert on this as, as anyone who's been through the FAO program. So fortunately, the folks who work the desks recognize that. And um, so I've been able to do some FAO work, even though I'm not technically a FAO. So you are a recent... Um, transplant to upstate New York, what has been uh, one of your favorite aspects of moving? And you just bought a house, too. So what has been one of your I favorite did, aspects yeah. of becoming an upstater? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, as you know, I went to school here. The first time I came to the Hudson Valley was um, in the early 90s when I um, came to uh, the study as an undergraduate. And I just, I loved it from the first moment I said, but on campus, I just thought it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Um, you know, I didn't have a car, and so I didn't really get to know the larger Hudson Valley. I was basically sequestered on campus all the time. Um, but I always wanted to come back. And so I was really happy when I got this job as chief of staff at Bard. And one of the most exciting things about it has been exploring the Hudson Valley more. And it's, it's um, even more interesting, more beautiful than I remembered. Uh, so... I think some of the most interesting things for me have been uh, exploring Kingston in particular. I had no idea it had so much history. It, I just didn't go there when I was an undergraduate. Um, and all the, the outdoor uh, stuff that's available to you here. I like skiing. I like hiking. Um, and I do have to say, since I've spent all my adult life in some of the most expensive metropolitan areas in the United States, my <laughs> year was, it was, it was uh, a really nice relief. I, you know, um, so I moved here from living in New York City, where uh, you know the mortgage I'm paying now on my new house wouldn't even cover half of the rent for my little one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan. So it's <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's it's nice to be in this community for a number of reasons. <laughs> I think it's always nice to get uh, a set of fresh eyes on the issues that we face. Uh, in upstate New York, the Hudson Valley in particular. Uh, from your perspective, what are some of the biggest issues you see uh, veterans in the, uh, in the sort of broader Hudson Valley and upstate communities? Well, um, I'm not sure I've been here long enough to become well, well enough acquainted with the veterans community to have a, a really good comprehensive answer to that question. But some of the thoughts that I have been swirling around are, I think there are a number of different veterans communities and um, this area is, um, it's rural enough and also uh, sort of dispersed enough. I'm not sure all the veterans communities are connected as well as they could be. So um, I, there, there are veterans from older wars who, who tend to belong to VFWs and other organizations like that. And then, but there are a lot of younger veterans too. And where are they going? Who are they? Where are they? They're not joining the same or organizations. And that to me is, is an issue because that's, that's young talent, but that's also people that have potentially have some, some issues that need to be resolved and, and their voices aren't getting, um, aren't really part of the conversations. So uh, I'm, I'm interested in trying to forge some of those connections. I, I recently just, um, I renewed my, uh, my membership, which had lapsed in, in the American Legion. I was never really an active member, but I joined a couple years ago because they have a really cool um, 
host in Alexandria, Virginia, which is where I was living before um, in a very historic building. So I was part of that for a while, but then I let it lapse. And then um, just recently I was trying to figure out how do I become more connected to this veterans community in Kingston, which is where I live now. And um, it's, it's all through these other organizations. To be part of the Kingston veterans community, you have to be a member of the American Legion or the VFW or something like that. So I, I rejoined um, and, um, and I, I hope I can bring some, some younger people into these organizations or, or find ways to connect with them. So even if they're not members of the American Legion or the VFW, they, they still feel like and are represented in this community. So, Malia, so you're at Bard College. Um, yeah. So we, you know, we've talked extensively about what Bard College is trying to do to uh, support military and veteran-connected students. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Bard is small. We have less than two thousand students, um, and, and we don't we we haven't had a, any kind of um, really extensive student veterans program. Um, we have, I think, 10 students um, at Bard right now who are um, using veterans benefits to, um, to pay for, their, uh, for part of their education. And only one of them is actually a veteran. Um, the others have family members who are veterans. So it's, it's a small part of our community now, but um, we really, civic engagement is a very important part of the educational process here. And one of the things that I'm trying to bring to Bard is this understanding that um, that military service is a really important part of civic engagement. It, it, you know, I think when people um, generally, not just at Bard, but in general, think of civic engagement, they're 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 thinking of a, a narrower spectrum of activities that that doesn't always include um, any kind of civil military relations or connection with the military. So. I want to broaden that, and the president of our is very supportive of that idea. He loves the fact that I'm in the military. Um, we have a couple other um, veterans on faculty and staff, and so there are a couple of things that we're doing now. Um, one is um, I'm starting this semester, actually. We're having our first meeting this week. We're having a, a military interest group meeting on campus. Um, all the faculty and staff who are veterans are, are going to come in and meet with students who are um, interested in military careers. Uh, there are a number of them that are seriously uh, considering joining the military, which was not necessarily the case when I was a student here. Um, I think there's, there's um, a lot more understanding um, and acceptance of, of that now than there was before. So we're, gonna, we're, we're trying to create a community here at Bard where we can have those discussions and be a resource to our students. Uh, we also have um, pretty extensive a partnership with West Point that we're very proud of. That's very unique. I think, um, you know, West Point has partnerships with a number of different schools, but the one they have with us is we have um, you know, a biannual conference we do with them. Um, we have a number of debates where the teams go back and forth. Um, in fact, our hard prison initiative debate team, I'm proud to say, has defeated West Point twice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, so there, there are a number of pieces of that partnership that are really great and that give students from both institutions the opportunity to learn more about, um, you know, what, what their hopes and dreams are. What does it look like to um, be a cadet? Um, what does it mean to be entering um, uh, a career of military service? Students here, um, 
you know, the, the fact they have access to that is, is exciting for them. And, and we, we take students on a tour West Point where they get, um, you know, they get sit in on a leadership class. They learn what leadership means from an army perspective. So that's, that's really great. Um, we also have what's called the, um, the Clementi program. Um, now this was not founded at BARD, but BARD helps run it. And it was, it was given the National Endowment for the Humanities Medal um, a couple of years ago by President Obama. This is a program by which college uh, level courses, college credit bearing courses are taught um, in local institutions around the country, like in libraries, oftentimes libraries or at the YMCA, um, and they're for community members um, who can come in and take these classes for free and their college level classes. Well, we've been starting up some Clementi Veterans Initiative classes. So that it's, it's giving veterans free access to college level courses in, in the humanities. And it's been really powerful um, where, um, where we've been able to start that. We're hoping to start one here in the Hudson Valley uh, soon. So that's, uh, that's under consideration. And we're also um, looking into um, becoming a ROTC affiliate. We're not big enough to have our own ROTC program, but um, a couple other schools in the Hudson Valley have, um, you know, our affiliates of a larger program down in New York City, and that's working pretty well for them. Um, and and um, so that we think is going to be a good option for us as well, and we're actively pursuing that at the moment. And I should say we recently joined the... Um, the Hudson Valley Consortium on uh, Military and Student Veteran Education. So we're connected to this larger system of, of schools that are all trying to help and support student veterans and give them opportunities and make sure they're getting all the benefits that they're entitled to. That's awesome, Malia. I, uh, you know, from my, my perspective, I, I see your career and I, th I think you're living the dream, right? You uh, started <laughs> at Bard and now you're back as the chief of staff at Bard, which uh, is pretty cool. Big. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Never would have dreamed that when I was a student here. It's a little bit surreal sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Um, but you've had an amazingly successful career along the way. I mean, you were named uh, or you got a Stevie Award for Female Executive of the Year uh, recently. Um, what what advice do you have for, for veterans who are transitioning and, and looking at, you know, this new career and how they navigate it um, to find uh, some modicum of success, understanding that success can be defined financially, happiness, you know, any, any number of things. How, how do you think veterans uh, can best go about finding uh, that measure of success in their lives after service? Yeah. I think um, a lot of people who are transitioning are worried about how their skills will translate and apply in um, a new environment. This, you know, the, the non-military environment that they haven't really um, been active in before, and they're, they're just not sure how to comport themselves and how to how to describe what they can do. Um, and so, my my first piece of advice is to be reassured that <laughs> your skills do translate. Um, and that you are much more versatile and um, diverse in your skills than you might think. Uh, so learning how to um, portray that is, is something that I think every transitioning veteran needs to work on. And there are a couple of ways you can do that. Um, and these, you know, it's in some ways it's intuitive, but a bear saying, you know, networking. So um, network with other veterans who already transitioned, um, 
have set up informational interviews with companies, even if you're not sure um, if they have a position available or if you'd be the right person for them. It's, it's still, it, it doesn't hurt anyone for you to call up and say, I'm interested in the kind of work you do. Can I come talk to you about it? So I think when I transitioned out of government service into the private sector, um, I was nervous about how that was going to go. It was a similar kind of transition. I'd never been in that sector of the economy before. I, I really wasn't sure how well it was going to go for me or how I could um, really learn to contribute. And um, I, I spent uh, a couple months before I made that leap talking to a lot of people in the private sector, sort of learning the vocabulary um, and getting a sense of, you know, what, how, how am I different? And like, what's the new thing I can bring here? Because like, that's, that's the other thing I would emphasize is um, you know, veterans and military people are different population. So not only does your, does your, uh, does your experience translate well to the, um, to the non-military sector, but you bring something very unusual and it's worth highlighting that you bring kind of leadership experience that, um, that a lot of people uh, don't get, um, a sense of responsibility and accountability that is often hard to find. Um, and so highlighting those things um, as, as something that you're gonna bring to the table is I think really, really useful. So I, I guess that's how I would approach it. Network, network, network. <laughs> Uh, and and make sure you you realize that you you do have value, um, and it is it, you're absolutely relevant um, as you transition. You, you can find a way to translate your skills to to a different environment. It's it's just a different context. That's all it is. So, Malia, I get to ask the last question, and um, I. I've got, I mean, we're going with a very serious question, which is, where have you had the best meal in oh. the Hudson Valley? Oh, man. I've had the best meal in the Hudson Valley. I do like to go out to eat. Um, uh, but for me, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not just the food. It's the whole atmosphere and everything. Um, so I'd say probably um, the most memorable meal I've had recently was at a wonderful place in tiny little high falls it's called the eggs nest and it is a beautiful restaurant and bar really unusual decor um, and wonderful homemade food and um, a really extensive array of beers on tap so i had uh, i forget exactly what some kind of belgian ale on tap that was amazing i love belgian beer having lived in you know worked at nato for a year so i'm, I'm a connoisseur and I found some good options at the Eggs Nest in High Falls, so I highly recommend it. Well, thank you for joining us, Malia. It's been a great conversation. Andrea, any uh, any last words? Uh, Malia, thank you so much for joining us. I think, actually, we didn't even mention this on the podcast, how uh, Malia and I met. Uh -huh. uh, Malia, uh, what saw a posting that I put on a Facebook group when I was recruiting candidates to participate in my master's research. So she was a source for my master's thesis. And then we realized we lived 45 minutes from each other in upstate New York. So, um, which is practically like being next door neighbors. In upstate. Yeah, exactly. Which is, which is an upstate New York is close. 
Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I have to say, I, I was yeah. so intrigued and, and motivated by Andrea's thesis topic that before I ever even spoke to her or met her, I started recruiting other people to become sources for her as well, because I was like, this is an important story and people need to participate in this, in this research. So um, it's just been a wonderful pleasure that um, you know, the relationship with Andrea didn't start and end with her thesis. That it, uh, you know, that, that we've become friends and we actually are neighbors now. Well, everybody, that's our show for today. Thanks again to Malia for joining us. Uh, Andrea, you better be driving safe, all right? I will. The snow just started. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, everybody, be safe, uh, be warm. And until next time, this is Two Vets Upstate. Bye, everyone. Bridges.